to welcome Dave Foley to the Stumble Forward. Dave is a comedian, actor, podcaster, director, producer, and writer. He's having a career with many interesting acts, highlights which include being a member of the iconic Canadian sketch comedy group Kids in the Hall, which of course had a massive impact on me. His role as Dave Nelson on the sitcom News Radio, Flick in a Bug's Life, as well as his newest venture, Really, which is a podcast exploring ufology, which rounds out the fullness of his being so damn fascinating. Welcome, Dave Foley. Hi. Dave, thanks for this. Well, thanks. Well, thanks. Thank you. It's a good good excuse to just uh, get to see you and talk to you. <laughs> it's been a while. It has been a while. Um, yeah. I do look back sometimes with embarrassment that I, uh, when you came to our apartment there in Hollywood, that I was showing you uh, Dr. Steve Brule videos, but it, it, was, it made you just <laughs> one of the group. And uh, no, uh, it was it, fun. That was a fun night. I had a great time. <laughs> um, Dave, when I was thinking about talking to you, of course, I'm a... I'm the right age to have been so massively affected by Kids in the Hall. I feel like I talk about it a lot on this podcast. This podcast, when I set out to do it, I think I ultimately kind of wanted it to be a, a podcast about comedy and maybe even a podcast about how musicians want to be comedians and maybe comedians even want to be musicians. Oh, yeah. Um, it's reciprocal. <laughs> oh, my God. What do you think that is? Because uh, no one's happy about anything ever. Um <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so why should comedians and musicians be any different? Um, well, I think, uh, I mean, I think, I think a lot of comedians get in, uh, you know, get into comedy just because we can't sing, uh, and uh, and we aren't handsome enough for porn, uh, so our damage goes into comedy. Um, well, I mean, I look at comedy with. Um you know, I was raised in a household by a dad who really celebrated comedy and celebrated funny people. And I feel like it was, it was woven into my fabric that funniness is one of the great human attributes that should be celebrated. And uh, for whatever reason, that's, that's, you know, one of the, the dominating vestiges of the way I think my childhood played out and sewed me together in the version of myself that I currently exist in. Um... The other thing about comedy is it can't, you can't lip sync comedy. And if people aren't laughing, it, it means that there's an empirical, that's an empirical result. Oh yeah. That's the one, that's one advantage of being in a, like being in a band. Uh, you don't know until you finish the song, whether or not you're bombing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> as a comedian, you know, second to second, you know. Yeah. But I think from, from my vantage point as a musician the purity of that is um is interesting of course i've never bombed like a comedian bombs with that moment to moment assessment no, of how no. bad things are going well, that's because your songs aren't terrible um well, well you say i get a three minute or four minute grace period till i find out anyway so maybe they were yeah. terrible just in those three or four minutes i couldn't i couldn't tell if the audience was feeling that oh that you know when you hear You know the song didn't kill. <laughs> I, mean, but, I mean, it's it's a delayed response, but it's it's there. And you know, 
And you also, and you, also, you, I'm sure you've also had that experience of, of as a musician of people just talking over you when you're starting out. Yeah, I, I do. Um, it's funny. I think that's where the comedy part comes to comes into play. I remember after I had been a sort of a known quantity in Canada and Europe, I went to break Australia. And Australians are great music fans, but they're also the same as anybody else in a bar with a singer at the corner of the room. They'd really rather wish you just go away. And I found that when I talked, they quieted down and sort of leaned in for interest's sake. And when I started singing again, they went back to their normally, you know, their their regularly scheduled program of yakking between each other. <laughs> yeah. So I was sort of regalvanized in Australia about 15 or 20 years ago to to bring the chat back onto the stage because for whatever reason, the audience seems, at least to me, to operate with a little more politeness, if that's the word, um, when I'm talking and they go back to yakking. I mean, that's not happening in comedy, though. You're not, you're not doing stand-up over top of people who are talking, are you? Well, there's always that element. Uh, it's usually not an entire crowd, uh, unless, you're, unless you're really not good at what you're doing. Um, but there's always, an, uh, like, certainly in stand-up, there's always uh, some people in the room who think, who've been misinformed and believe that, uh, uh, that comedians like the audience to get involved. And uh, either through heckling or just commenting on everything, you know, they want to join in. And then you have to, like, you have to, uh, you know, exert a certain amount of uh, energy to, to getting them to shut up. And without losing, the, without losing the rest of the audience. So it's always a balance of how do I shut this person up while still, uh, well, without creating sympathy for them. Man, that's the science of performing. I feel like I talk about that all the time. It's... Such a fine balance. I liken it to like holding a bat on the, you know, like straight up on the end of your hand. And you're always kind of trying to keep it balanced. And that, that person who's come to the show with a mind that they are going to self-express as their right that's come included in the ticket price is very mm -hmm. interesting. That, that human, that archetype, I'd sure like to sit down with a 20 of that version of person just to kind of understand because I really do think it's you and I have, have outlets and it allows us I think a certain inner peace like I do feel sometimes when I look at other men you know squealing their tires out of grocery store parking lots or playing loud music with the windows rolled down I think it's not so much that we're that different it's that I have a means of expressing myself that's has been more or less sanctioned by the greater public and then these mm -hmm. folks just don't have an outlet it's true, and it's just, yeah, all of those behaviors are ways of saying, look at me, I exist. Yeah. Because I think all of us, I think all of us kind of live with that background fear that maybe we don't, you know? <laughs> you know, that, you know, how do you, you, know, how do you have it, you know, feel like you're having an impact on the world around you? And sometimes that, that, that uh, instinct can be uh, either as an individual or through groups turned, turned pretty ugly, you know? Mm. Are you having an impact? Do you feel that? Um, well, I think I've had an impact. I don't know if I, I, I don't know if it's ongoing. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's, you know, it's, I think there's things I've done that if, that I, that I know for a fact, I have, um, people, you know, come up to me and tell me that, that it's had, you know, an effect on their lives or things that it's made maybe a bad moment slightly less awful, or, uh, it's made them feel a little less lonely at times or, you know, that sort of thing. And that's, that's pretty gratifying. Yeah. You know? And, and I also think I also, I'm, you know, 
uh, egotistical enough to look at the world and go, oh, yeah, there's, when I see comedy, go, oh, yeah, that's, yeah, there, there's a bit of me in that. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that. It really actually am. I'm, I'm, I'm filled with a bit of gladness to know that because, you know, some of the, some of the things I was watching and leading up to talking to you, I, I hear some of the delf, self, part of me, self-deprecating comments come out. And when I consider how long your career has been, and it also, it means, it means that I'm 48 years old and I'm no longer 16 or 17 watching Kids in the Hall in the basement of my parents' house, but I still feel that Kids in the Hall's effect on me is evergreen. It, it feels like whatever happened on that show that illuminated a spirit of indie, a spirit of go to Toronto, make something by hand and bring it to the world, that stuff that I feel like I learned as part of the package deal of being a fan of Kids in the Hall lives with me as ever present in this moment as it did when I was a teenager. So I, when, I, when you say maybe you had an effect, Yes, the Kids in the Hall comes from some decades ago, but I, I still feel the effect of Kids in the Hall as if it's still happening to me. Yeah, well, that's nice to hear. Um, yeah, and it's, I mean, look, I, mean, I mean, I know there's, you know, that there's comedy that still echoes in my head and that, you know, I, I still, uh, you know, I guess as a young man felt a, a certain sense of identity that came from, you know, the, the shared comedic tastes with other with other people I liked, you know, uh, whether it was like Monty Python or SCTV, or even like the those early those are especially those early days of David Letterman. Mm. I mean, that was kind of you know, those were things that were like uh, bound to community at the time, you know, and I you know and I and I I, I can recognize that Kids in the Hall did that as well, you know, so yeah. and. Which is nice. It's a really it's and, and it's still, even now even um, like when we did the reboot of the Kids in the Hall mm -hmm. and um, especially on social media there was just that even even in, amongst professional TV critics there was a sense of uh, apprehension and then great relief. Yeah, um, it's like oh please don't be terrible. Yeah, oh please don't be boring old boring old angry men. Um, and uh, and then it was like, oh, uh, it, uh, it felt like the kids in the hall still, you know. Yeah, and it felt like a better reimagined version. It didn't feel like a throwback. It felt, I, I'm with you. I, I took my time getting around to watching it for this very reason. I didn't want to have my heroes sullied in the way that we sort of, I think, expect folks who we have a tradition of paying attention to returning with something that is half-baked or less interesting or is or doesn't come with the sort of, the impact and, and that just didn't happen with the reboot it was it was fantastic mm -hmm. i mean that oh, in and of oh, itself good. must be something to lean into a little bit like feel some pride about oh great pride yeah no it was um i think you know the fact that at you know at, at our age um you know i'm the youngest and i'm now 60 um uh, so when, when we were making the show everyone else was in their 60s except me um and I mean the new show, yeah. and you know, and and yeah, we didn't want to be just a reference to something from people's past. We wanted to be, we you know, when we got we, the hope was that we still had something um, uh, unique to us to say, you know, and um, you know, and and we were as worried about it, I think, as anyone else, you know, and those worries kind of got um, 
calmed when we started sitting in a room together and writing and and you know and then you know i'm going oh these guys are still funny they still make me laugh right so if they're making me laugh then you know maybe this is going to work out okay I mean, I that that sounds there's the the equivalent to me is that getting in the studio with my band and feeling that same old you know um, that old fashioned wind blow in that somehow st- still tickles you in a way that feels new and exciting is that what you're you're getting at? Yeah, yeah, and just and and of course there's also just uh, you know a certain amount of uh, with the kids in the hall whenever we get together there's a certain amount of self delusion. Um, where, where we, we kind of, uh, we forget that we're old and we feel like we're still, like we're still the young punks trying to, trying to prove something. Mm. Um, you know, that attitude is still there and it's, and it's also, we're, you know, that aggression with each other too, which is, you know, part of it, um, where, uh, you, you know, you, you have to, uh, you kind of have to show up ready to battle, you know, to get your stuff in the show and to, and to get the other guys on board. Um, but at the same time, it's, but at the same time, it's also a place where, uh, I think all the five of us all have this experience where, uh, the other four guys are the guys that make us laugh the hardest at, you know, at any point in our lives. So it's, so it's, it's a mix of, it's a mix of, 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 of aggression and community, I guess. I mean, does that mean that due to. As I get a little bit older, you know, I've got the hood up on, you know, my the my internals and I'm trying to become a better person incrementally, even if those increments are very, very tiny as I get older. One of the things is I look at my want to be a people pleaser. And when I hear about how, you know, you and the rest of the fellas and kids in the hall still grind one another or maybe are willing to be in a place of discomfort with one another in order to have your have your comedy piece be put forward or I guess what I'm interested in these days as I get older is in a creative relationship there are days where you don't like the other person I I'm uncomfortable with those moments but I'm starting to realize that to get to the good stuff sometimes you have to be in a state of dislike with with a long-term creative partner is that true um well, I think it has been true with the kids in the hall, at least. Um, and I've talked to, and, and I get the impression that was, that was true of, say, Monty Python. Um, maybe less true of SCTV. Um, but there was some, there were conflicts in that group too. I know, you know, from becoming friends with all of those those people. Um, but definitely with the with the kids in the hall, I mean, there was always, I mean. The, the line between despising each other and loving each other was always uh, very fine. Um, and, you know, I, and I, you know, part of it, I guess, is because we came out of that, that specific era that, you know, that sort of post, just, well, not even post-punk, punk, punk and then post-punk, um, where, uh, you know, the, the worst thing you could be was boring, you know. Mm. And so I think we pushed each other to not to not be boring and to not and it was always just the idea of don't do like don't do it and even don't do even what what you love, you know if what if somebody else did something you love that's a good guidepost to not do that. Interesting. You know? So we you know that was the kind of part of just the group, but then also there was also just uh, it was five uh, deeply flawed human beings. Um, uh, all, you know, all with, you know, various scars and childhood traumas and, um, you know, and we were not, you know, in those days we weren't looking to heal. We were just sort of, <laughs> you know, it wasn't, that wasn't on our radar, the notion of healing. Um, right. 
uh, it was more just, uh, you know, you know, how do we just uh, do something that 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 makes makes us uh, feel good at the time? You you brought up early Letterman. Um, I often, you know, I've been interviewed enough times about, and the, one of the standard questions is, oh, what is the music that inspired you? And of course, the music that inspired me is vast, and I I have a long list of things that I love. But I always say very quickly that comedy was as big an influence on my, especially my lyric writing, obviously. Um, because of the window in on absurdity that a certain gaggle of uh, people in comedy. I always, I cite Gary Larson, early Seinfeld, Dave Mm -hmm. Letterman, and Kids in the Hall as being my um, talus people, talus men, of into helping a teenager who is looking at the world going, this whole thing is a big fib. And then, but when I lean into kids in the hall, their obsession with uncovering the various absurdities all of a sudden makes me feel very comfortable in my own skin. Um, does this, are you hearing some of this? Is this ringing? Through? Yeah. Well, and for, uh, first thing across my mind is I'm so glad you include Gary Larson. Um, oh, no. <laughs> Cause I was talking to a friend of mine a little while ago, who's like a, a fine artist, very successful artist. And the subject of Banksy came up. And I had to say, you know what? I really think uh, Gary Larson is way better. Um, <laughs> I think you're right. Yeah, I mean, but Banksy is just really weak uh, far sides uh, for the most part. I mean, it's. It, I would also say that. I mean, how many Gary Larson books are there? I mean, just in terms of profundity and output, uh, you got to yeah. look at Gary Larson as a guy who seemed to be able to hit it out of the park on repeat. Oh yeah, and 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 to be able to be able to to tell a, a beautiful joke, you know, most of the time in one panel, mm-hmm. you know, that's that's incredible uh, concision. I feel like the Shark Nerds run the projector as well as Beware of Doug. Those two comics, like, were the two that felt spiritually in line with where the kids in the hall were seeing life and were sort of were envisioning the cleave of absurdity that that we're sort of all wandering around smoke kind of billowing out from the from the earth on that um were you reading those things when you were a kid i don't even know how far back gary larson goes was it something from the 70s 80s i can't remember when gary larson started it, it feels i feels like he's always been there at least at least in the 80s i definitely was reading him in the 80s yeah um so maybe not is it in this you know i don't think he was around in the 70s but uh you know but then um, you know, there were other things. I remember as a kid reading like Pogo, you know, which was pretty great too in those days. Um, you know, and of course Mad Magazine was, you know, right. as, a, as a kid. It's uh, funny I, what you, what you end up having space in your life for. Cause I mean, I have friends who I deeply admire creatively who have, who have that commonality of having Mad Magazine as being a part of them. And Mad Magazine, as much as I saw it at the grocery store, you know, and a couple of friends, I would have leafed through it at their house at a sleepover. It didn't, it just didn't enter into my world. So it's very interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's one of those things that it was, uh, uh, as a kid, it was just, oh, you know, it's just, it's all there was, uh, you know, yeah. in terms of something that was uh, satirizing, uh, you know, and more, more, uh, it was more uh, parodying than satirizing. I mean, like you know, because I remember reading the uh, the Mad Magazine parody of um, the way we were as a kid, and I have to this day never seen the movie. I only know it from the Mad Magazine version. <laughs> 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 so, so there's a lot of that, you know. You know, um, 
But, uh, you know, and it's again, like there's stuff that influenced me that maybe, you know, I, I moved on from, you know, like as a, you know, as a kid, I loved, you know, loved Jerry Lewis, you know, and, mm. uh, and then got older and went, oh, okay. And then got a little older and went, oh, wait a minute, 10 minutes of every Jerry Lewis movie is genius. Um, right. You know, so, you know, there's those influences. You know, Jerry, uh, you know, I got to say, like, you know, it, I, I certainly don't seem like someone who's a Jerry Lewis uh, product, but in a large, in a lot of ways I am because he was one of the first people that made me laugh when I was like four or five years old. Mm. Did kids in the hall know what they were like? I know this is a dumb question and I feel like I know the answer, but I like asking this type of thing because I'm interested in, like I've already said, I, I'm glad to hear that you see your resonance in other comedy. Um, I hope that if you ever listen to my music, you go, yeah, I hear some of the effect of Kids in the Hall in this, because you should, because it's there. Oh, I'm um, glad to hear that. I know, I, I, know when I, was, I know I certainly love the wit in your oh, songs. You know? well, so I'm guessing Kids in the Hall are not knowingly, connivingly sitting here going, we are the beginnings of the threads of the fabric of a, of a future of comedic thinking. We are the threads in the fabric of the future of even indie thinking i feel like you i feel like kids in the hall had a lot to do with giving birth to indie spirit including the opening montage as as the the moving camera goes down bay street and passes by the old um cadillac dealership and just the sound of um the the opening theme song feeling kind of rowdy and exciting dark mystical it gave the whole thing gave us a sense that you could leave your rural moorings as a kid and go off to toronto and hand make stuff like these guys where i feel like the birth of the indie spirit i feel connects almost more closely to the kids in the hall than any music product is this making well, sense yeah well i mean i think I mean, I'll say to our credit and to our discredit at the same time, uh, like everything that happened to the kids in the hall uh, happened through um, uh, just it, just a, an arrogance and a determination uh, to, to, to only do exactly what we wanted to do, um, you know, and. And and it was and it was we never had there was no plan there was no uh, strategy for anything that happened, and everything that every single thing that happened for the kids in the hall uh, happened just because we were really funny, um, and you know that was that was the only that was the only thing you know because we didn't we certainly didn't have a marketing plan that got us the attention of. You know, uh, you know, of Saturday Night Live. You know, you know, it it was just we just kept doing exactly what we liked, and you know, and like then like you know, one journalist, a guy named Ray Conalog, wrote a wrote a rave review about us, and that got you know that got the scouts for Saturday Night Live to to check us out, and that got that led to like you know Al Franken flying up to what to to audition us. And every, but everything just everything just came out of the work. Nothing came out of any kind of um, business plan. Um, so it was definitely kind of that DIY, you know, a, a punk ethos to it that we're just going to keep doing. And at the time, we thought, you know, I think when we were starting, we just thought, look, we'll do this until till you know until all of us can find jobs somewhere. Um, we didn't think the troop would would last. Mm. 
And it, I think it only really lasted because Lauren Michaels came along and sort of said, uh, I'm going to keep you guys together. Uh, we were we were always on the lookout for uh, a chance to get out of it. Really? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, my God, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know. <laughs> Still <I> mean, are. <laughs> <laughs> so much Canadian television, from my perspective, it has a feel of... Um, the marketing plan coming sometimes before the script is written and a lot of influence by a very laden community. Uh, it's, it's it, it feels like it's been made by committee. It doesn't feel pure in the way you're talking about. I mean, maybe I ask the question about, did you know that you were creating something that would have this lasting effect? Because I'm interested to discuss the idea that the great things that get made in life often are made by accident or in a serendipitous moment that is not supposed to be anything but just a moment between moments, yet something extraordinary happens. And I feel the effect of Kids in the Hall on culture as being something that is difficult to deny. I even wonder with this, what you're saying about Lauren Michaels, if there's not somehow let's keep these kids in the hall guys going because they're keeping the portal to a version of absurdity that's so ahead of its time. We at least need to keep that portal open so that once Saturday Night Live catches up to this, we can start to import some of this, some of the stuff these guys are doing. So we need to just keep this open because it's a buffet of newness. Is that, is that something well, that was maybe? I think, I think that was something that was, um, I mean, I, I mean, it really was like, look, when Lauren Mike, like we had, Mark and Bruce spent one year writing as apprentice writers on Saturday Night Live. And on, on what is by, by I think most people's assessment, the worst season of Saturday Night Live of all time, uh, the 1985 season. And then, uh, but at the end of that year, Lauren had kept here, you know, the guys kept coming up on their breaks and we kept doing shows in Toronto. And, and Lauren kept hearing from people like Marty Short and, you know, Dave Thomas and, you know, and Catherine O'Hara that 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 uh, he should check out the troupe, and so he flew up and saw us, and you know he came up with it with the idea of well maybe there's somebody in this group I can bring down to Saturday Night Live, and but after seeing our show at, at the Rivoli, you know, he uh, it was his call. He said, look, I don't want to break this group up because he thought there was something special about it. Uh, I think he probably recognized it more than we did. Um, I mean, we knew, I mean, I get, I, I would say that we would, if you had asked us at the time or even now, um, we would have told you, yeah, we're the best, we're the best sketch group in the world was our attitude Great. Uh, at the time, you know, and we didn't, we didn't think anyone was funnier than us. You know, I later got to meet people in LA who I, who I realized, oh, they are, they're as good as us. And, you know, like all the Mr. Show folks and everything, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, we, 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 we had great confidence in what we were doing, but we didn't have a vision for it the way I think like Lauren did. Uh, Lauren saw what it could be. And, um, and so he's the one who decided not to bring like one or two of us down as like, you know, feature players or writers, um, but to, to do something with the show. And, and, you know, and down the road, I think Lauren had to live with people constantly comparing Saturday Night Live to us for for a while, which I think Lauren found a little annoying. And, right. Um, but like, then why we, can't they be as good as those guys in Canada? Yeah, they, there was yeah. a lot of that, you know. <laughs> you know, and um, 
And then I think a little while after that, I, you know, we started to see the influence of, you know, Kids in the Hall seeping into Saturday Night Live, you know, especially like around, you know, like the Will Ferrell, Amy Poehler days, you know, we started going, oh, they're, you know, this show's getting more like us. Yeah. You know. Sometimes the, I'll even say it's a feigned humility that goes on in the arts and culture biz in Canada. Um, to hear that you guys thought you were great back when you were young, whether that was just naivete masquerading as courage, which is wonderful because that's why we make the great stuff we do when we're young. But, you know, I've always sort of felt a little out of step even with my community because, you know, I didn't put in all this time and work and effort and thought and focus in what I was doing to sort of just shrug it off someday as, oh, that's not really, it's not really that much of a thing. Like I, yeah. I set out to make something great every time and believe that, it's within my within the the realm of earthly possibility that I can do that. Um, when I hear other confident people talk, or people talk of eras at least of confidence in their creative outputs, I know that my confidence goes up and down. It's I can sort of sense like it's it's like its own stock market. Like if my confidence and self belief is up, it's great. And sometimes, but sometimes miraculous things can happen when your confidence and self belief are not great. But um, Hearing, hearing about a, a confident punkish group in Canada who were allowed to remain themselves and were fiercely devoted to being themselves gets me all excited. Um, you know, the late 20th century to me was a pretty interesting time. I can look back with a lot of nostalgia because it was when I was forming my you know, the version of myself yeah. that would be the version that's talking to you today. But I still think that that era of the late 20th century even though I was a part of it and I have a nostalgic, I can wax nostalgically about it. There's something remarkable going on. This pre-internet era, we were, I, I always think we believed we were on the cusp of modernity, you know, just bursting out. This was pre-internet. We just thought, at least I did, that the future was here and we were a part of it. Um, but yeah. it, it was still very handmade. Yeah. Oh, no. And like things like, my God, and like, like indie music or what started out as indie music became, you know, uh, the dominant you know form back mm -hmm. in like the 90s mm -hmm. you know it was like it was I mean, it's like a great i mean i have a 20 year old daughter and uh she and all of her friends are really into 90s music you know and um because it's it was just a great era in i mean in music i mean like you know like like uh, there were things that were related i mean like for the kids in the hall, I mean, the, the the soundtrack to our creative output was, you know, was the replacements and the pixies, you know, um, this, you know, all this great stuff that was happening in that, you know, in, in that era um, was, uh, you know, like, like I, I can't like every like every like every season of kids in the hall, there was a new pixies album that had to be listened to constantly, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, and in our you know, in our club days, that was always the soundtrack in between sketches before, you know, back before we, you know, adopted the shadowy men as our, mm. as our, as our soundtrack. I feel like you were just hearing you say that gives me my gut a sense about the filtration that was actually happening and really the filtration that happens in all great art that, but here we had five great minds, five individuals. And the other thing about Kids in the Hall, when I started to think about some of your characters versus some of Bruce's characters or Scott's characters are, it wasn't like there were, you were five like-minded people or even that you were, no. that, that your version of comedy or what was, or even your take or sliver, the tranche of absurdity that you 
had a particular sort of focus on. You were all very different. Well, I always said the best kids in the whole episodes are episodes where uh, each of us has something in there's a, there's something in that, in that episode that each of us hates, um, right. you know, and you know <laughs> that we, that it's not about a you know you know we, we had a general uh, there was a general agreement that we still have that that you know that the other four guys are you know are, are the funniest people you know. Um, but there was certainly just, you know, huge, huge battles about what we should be doing. And of course, we were young enough to think that that every mistake was catastrophic. Mm. You know, every misstep was like, oh, you're destroying our whole, you're destroying everything we tried to build. Is you know, was kind of the attitude as opposed to just, I don't really like that, you know. Right. But uh, but we also gave each other the freedom to do stuff that 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 we didn't like. You know, it's like there would be, a, you know, you know, it would be really would be just be that if you could convince like one other guy to like it, you could usually get it done. Um, but there would, you know, it's um, where was I going with that? Uh, we're just talking about how individual you all were like that. There yeah. wasn't like, it wasn't like a single brand of thought coming from kids in the hall. No. And you no, know, because like, you know, if if uh, yeah, if all of us did, you know, uh Bruce's sort of poetic, you know, uh, comedy, then it would have, would have got pretty tiresome. Um, you know, I think, you know, or if all, or, or if all of it was, you know, silly Kevin and Dave stuff, that would have gotten tiresome, you know? Um, it was the fact that we, uh, made room for each other, but also that when you were in each other's pieces, as much as we would fight in the, uh, the writing, of of the of the pieces, and as much as we would also fight in the staging, and we would fight in the editing of of things, all of that was always, you know, there was there was always, you know, and most of the time uh, things got better because of it. But um, but as performers, uh, when you stepped into any of the other guys' sketches, you gave everything to it. You know, you 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 did you did your best to make it the best possible piece of comedy it could be you know and everyone did that everyone like no one walked through a piece everybody just everybody just as a, as performers they mm. wanted to give everything they could to every single idea i feel in some ways some of the ideas were so risky so absurd i i know like if i'm putting forth an idea that even i only am half buying into i have to perform at twice the power in order to believe it myself or to put a version of belief out into the world. Like I'm guessing there wouldn't have been any other way. You guys couldn't have walked through the kind of comedy we were making because it felt so brand new that in order to get full buy-in from the audience, I'm sure there was a sense you had to have full buy-in from the performance, that you had to perform that stuff as a means of convincing an audience just how good it was. Because I think the other thing with Kids in the Hall and a lot of comedy that comes along that is not completely understood at first is that it's almost like we we need a few lessons. We need to we need a couple of we need to read the, the the manual before we get into because the thinking is going to be absurd enough for some people that just by virtue of having new thoughts in their heads that are conflicting and odd and I would even say that some of the stuff that you were putting forward make people feel uncomfortable. Um, I know mm. we're living in an era where that is sort of less the pursuit of art, but I still find that as a big part of what you're supposed to be doing as a performer. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, uh, yeah, I, I, well, I always, I, you know, 
as a, as a father, I often tell my daughter, be aware of anything that makes you comfortable. Mm. Um, comfort, comfort is not your friend. <laughs> um, you know, and, and it truly isn't. It's not, you know, physically and mentally comfort is a, comfort is a dead end. Um, you know, comfort is comfort is sitting on the couch and getting and getting fat and lazy. Um, you know, discomfort is exercising, you know, building up your body. And it's the same mentally. Um, you know, if you if you're just avoiding ideas that, you know, if you're avoiding ideas that make you uh, uh, uncomfortable uh, or that or that maybe undermine your your sense of right and wrong um, or, or what's true um then then you really are mentally just a you're you're a mental couch potato um mm. you know if you know so it's like i'm always you know even now it's at it, 60 years old i'm still get i get very suspicious of any ideas that that make me feel comfortable mm. um uh you know those are the, those are the ones i think are the most the most, those are the ideas that are probably the most dangerous ideas well this is sounds like an interesting and almost um it sounds like a gift for me to just pivot into the next thing I wanted to talk to you about, which is your newest project. If you don't mind skipping over some decades of your career into, <laughs> That's all right. into the Really podcast, because mm -hmm. I think what you're doing with Really is fascinating and it speaks very loudly to me because I've been a part of this sort of this thought modality for well over a decade as well, although I keep it to myself because it's people risky. people will treat you like you're crazy. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Which, when I first heard you talking about your thoughts around ufology on Joe Rogan and on subsequent podcasts, I am, again, seeing you as a, a, a pioneer of thinking, um, even what you and Tom are attempting to do, more or less by being an on-ramp for people who are sort of fresh or brand new into this mode of thinking, is something that I've been even wondering if how I bring that into this podcast because it's a big part of who I am, not just ufology, but esoteric thinking and unexplained things. It's been a personal obsession of mine. And I'm guessing that for those people who have an invested, who's want to invest in absurdity, I'm trying to understand where somebody like you arrives at this because I also I have a, a fondness for absurdity, but I have a fondness for truth. And there seems to, truth is, seems often to be in short supply, or at least a truth that that lets my stomach feel rest, or when my internal when my internal mechanisms, the one that really knows, when it says this is true, like that's it's amazing what it decides to settle on. So how did you get here? Well, I think part of it thank you for getting here by the way oh, well thank you I, and again I, I had no idea this was an area that you were interested in which is t typical because you know when i started talking publicly suddenly uh, so many people started coming to me and saying well you know what i've had this experience or i believe well, it's, this and it's a brave thing you did you know and it's and it started just i think uh for me i mean it was, it was like a lifelong sort of up and down interest of you know and wondering if this is if you know, if this is true, what's going on? Um, always kind of uh, underlying. So I guess my 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 way of thinking about it was always, well, there's 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 too much going too much going on in terms of just anecdotal evidence and um, you know and events that can't be explained for it all to be bullshit. There has to be something to this. Uh, 
uh, or these phenomena. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and I kind of felt the same way about things like ghosts. I thought, well, ghosts persist throughout human history. Uh, they permeate all of our literature and art. Um, and uh, so there's probably something to it. Uh, I don't know what it is. I'm not saying, like, I still, you know, I'm still an atheist who doesn't believe necessarily that we have souls. But I believe that there are there has to be something to something that's that persistent. So I had that sense of interest in UFOs throughout life because it's also just a really cool subject mm-hmm. um, and fun. And, you know, and a lot of it seemed silly back, you know, and then about, I guess, a little over 10 years ago, I guess I saw, um, I mean, I, let's even go further back. I remember the Phoenix Lights happened in 97. That made me sort of for a moment go, okay, this is a more serious thing than than people are treating it as. Like, this is something that really can't be explained and the explanations that are being put forward don't hold water. Mm-hmm. Um, so why, and what, so, and, and I also got, looked at, well, how, why is it that sort of the media will take the, a, a very uncompelling explanation and just use that as an excuse to stop talking about something? Mm-hmm. And that seemed to be the rule. And then a little while after that, the uh, the French put out a, something called the Cometa Report, which was a, a study done by scientists, police, uh, psychologists, um, and uh, military uh, about UFO incidences in, in in France. And after their study, they came up to the, they came they basically published a conclusion which was that UFOs are real. And that the extraterrestrial hypothesis is the most likely explanation. And I thought, mm-hmm. well, that's a pretty big thing for a whole country to say, um, you know, especially one with a long history of, uh, you know, of intellectual progress. Um, yes. Um, so, um, you know, it's not like, um, oh, crazy France, they're always on about something yeah. nutty. Um, so I was going, well, that's pretty interesting. And again, it had zero traction in our culture. Um, so, and so, I, you know, and then uh, I, I guess it was like about 10, 11 years ago, I saw a film called um, uh, Out of the Blue by James Fox. And it was kind of the first really good kind of journalistic documentary that I had seen about UFOs. And it also it brought up a lot of history of UFOs that I'd never bothered to examine and it was a lot of a uh, lot of interviews with really credible people, people from military and government, and um, you know, and and scientists. And I thought, well, this is you know, and you know, that's where and you know, learning things like this is before the the Tic Tac thing became mm-hmm. public knowledge. But this is um, when he made this documentary. But it was like you know, talking about things like Malmstrom uh, missile base, where. Basically, it was reported, and it's in it's in documents that uh, you know a, a huge UFO parked itself over a a um, you know a nuclear missile silo site with ten nuclear missiles prompt you know ready to go, um, and uh, shut them all down, like mm-hmm. like turned off the guidance systems on all ten of these missiles, um, and they couldn't turn them back on until the UFO went away, and I thought, well, this is these are pretty serious people. The guy who sits in a, a capsule 60 feet underground waiting to start a nuclear war or waiting to, you know, engage in a nuclear war, basically sitting there ready to do, you know, do do this and know that 
when he goes, next time he travels up 60 feet, there's going to be nothing up there. Um, <clears throat> so these are serious people. Yeah. Um, who are reporting seeing this thing and having this event happen. And so that, well, you know, and, and that movie was full of people like that. And it also, you know, did a pretty good examination of the Phoenix lights. And, <clears throat> and that just got me thinking about it more seriously. And um, so then sort of, sort of diving into it and trying to learn more about it and, and thinking more seriously about it. And, and, and I guess that, yeah, that same mindset from Kids in the Hole and everything else where it's basically if someone tells me uh, this is something you shouldn't talk about. Yeah. Then I go, oh, that's probably the, the area to go into then. Um, like what's a tab, anything that's a taboo uh, becomes interesting on the basis of why is it a taboo? You know, and then I sort of learned things that were even more disturbing, and that is that that the taboo about UFOs was uh, deliberately and uh, uh, created, um, and it was deliberately created uh, after a, a study by the CIA, instituted by the CIA, um, back in. Uh, and was it, uh, 1952, I think it was, uh, something called the Robertson Panel, um, that was brought in because uh, because the because uh, one of the things I learned about in that movie is that the White House was uh, and the Capitol Building were sworn by UFOs two weekends in a row in 1952. Um, you know, and uh, the, you know, tracked on radar, visually sighted by uh, you know air traffic controllers. Uh, they were chased by uh, fighter pilots. And is this Eisenhower era? Is it 52 Eisenhower 52 era? 52 would be, yeah, Eisenhower, yeah. Because he's often cited as sort of, in terms of presidents along history, as one of the ones that it's that must have had some yeah. communication or connection. Well, there's, there. I mean, obviously there's the lore that, you know, hmm. that he signed a peace treaty, you know, sure. <laughs> which I don't, I don't believe that because I don't see why... Um, you know, I think the, you know, aliens signing a peace treaty with humans would be like us signing a peace treaty with puppies, you know, uh, you know, we don't need to. So why would we? Um, Interesting. Um, but, but, but that was, um, as I said, that got me thinking about it and started reading and trying to look for, you know, credible sources of information. And the more I did, the more I thought, this is a really serious thing. There's something is going on. And, and there's too many, you know, whether it's, you know, an Iranian, uh, again, top gun fighter pilot who engaged with the UFO over Tehran with tens of thousands of people witnessing it and, you know, and having his, all of his systems shut down every time he tried to attack this thing, hmm. you know, and there's like just endless reports like that, like endless reports from Credible military people backed up by radar, backed up by uh, corroborating uh, eyewitnesses. And you go, well, all of these people can't be crazy. Yeah. Are you surprised, to, and to use parlance from the community, that these sort of different disclosures that there seems to be zero resonance? Like that we're not out in the in, on the streets screaming or at least talking about this that this like i feel like if the 1980s version of myself if you talk to the 10 year old me and said look in 30 some odd years they're gonna they're gonna let this out like 
pie-eyed and excited would have been an understatement. Like, mm-hmm. Mike, it, it just feels to me like, here it is. And yet, are we just too busy to care? What's going on? No, it's, it's um, I, I'd say one of the things as I got into it was that intrigued me the most is that uh, it's a really great case study on how effective uh, social engineering can be. Um, and, you know, you know, and, and it's the thing is, you, you know, it's, it's not like it's not a big conspiracy thing. It's, it's just that social engineering works, uh, creating an environment where there are things you do talk about and things you don't talk about uh, is as old as human society. Mm. Um, and as I said, like Noam Chomsky wrote about it um, in, uh, you know, in, in uh, Manufacturing Consent which is a term borrowed from, and I'm blanking on his name, basically, uh, 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 an American th- uh, who basically invented uh, public relations, and I forget his name now. Um, invented public relations and propaganda, uh, modern propaganda. And, um, and, 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 you know, and his theories were, were quickly taken up by the Nazis, um, but also by, uh, by Madison Avenue, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so... The effectiveness of social conditioning, and and so so the CIA put the Robertson panel together, and they they basically put out an, a a template for what they wanted to do, which was a program. Uh, basically, they decided that we look, we can't do anything to stop these UFOs from showing up. So what we need to do is stop people from talking about it, because we can't we we have, we're powerless to defend the public against these things. So we need to get them to ignore that they exist. Um, and they said, well, well, we, a program of debunking and explanations and, um, uh, character assassination and ridicule. And they even outlined how they would, uh, incorporate, uh, mass media, uh, radio, television, print movies that they would uh, reach out to these, uh, these, you know, uh, the media, the entertainment industry, and try to get them on board with mocking, ridiculing, uh, and diminishing the subject. And the, you know, and as, as I said, like, uh, you know, Chomsky, you sort of wrote that if you want people to, you know, not talk about or think about a subject, you create an environment where sensible people don't take this seriously. You know, and, uh, you know, he, you know, and he, he applied that in later years, even, you know, to things like what's going on in the Middle East, um, you know, that we just create an environment where we only look at certain things, um, uh, at least sensible people do. Um, and so with the UFO thing, that was it. They just created an environment where sensible people don't talk about it. The media came on board with that, um, you know, uh, because people, it's, it's, it's a scary thing, and and I think you can you can exploit people's desire to just not think about things that might be scary, mm. you know. Um, and they did it so effectively that that even in 2017, when the uh, the front page of the Sunday New York Times, as high profile a news outlet i mean maybe not as as much as it used to be in going back to the 70s say but still as pretty much as high a profile a news platform as you can get is the front page of the sunday times and 
they put out an article saying UFOs are real. The Pentagon admits they're real. Oh, and here's some videos of UFOs taken by the Pentagon, taken by the military. And oh, and here's a former um, uh, Pentagon official, Lou Elizondo, uh, who has been running a UFO research program um, secretly called ATIP. Um, you know, and what the Times didn't report was that there was also a much larger uh, government program uh, called OSAP that was also that was also studying uh, UFOs and related phenomena. Um, so that happened, and almost no ripple effect in the culture, yeah. um, it, to the extent that, uh, like, especially amongst. As I always say, especially amongst my my sort of political co- uh, cohort, you know, the the left, the intellectual left, the least impact on us, um, because they're the most interested in being rep- representative of sensible people, as you keep referring. Yes, to. yes, and you know, as I always said, like you know, as I said, Chomsky also said, the you know, basically the easiest people to manipulate are intellectual elites um, because they they don't want to be outside the group, they don't want to fall. A foul of the community, and uh, so it's a. Uh, so uh, yeah, so I and I know friends of mine that read the New York Times, uh, you know, cover to cover, you know, and I said, and I was talking to them about you know the the uh, you know this program, the secret UFO program, and these videos, and they all what what's that about? When when did that happen? I go well, it was in the New York Times. Oh, I don't, I didn't see that, and it's not that they didn't. It's not like. They just didn't read the article. They, their consciousness was incapable of perceiving that the article was on the page. Yeah. And that's, that's the world we live in where, where we can be so manipulated that we just don't, we, we, don't even, we don't even engage our senses to observe something that we've been conditioned to not observe. You know, and, you know, and it's also, you know, uh, and that's it's been going on for so long, and it's maybe just now breaking down, maybe. But it's still, you know, again, we had we had a con- congressional hearing with three incredibly um, uh, credible um, witnesses, to be contradictory in my language, um, who came out and said, you know, we had Ryan Graves saying every day for a two-year period we were encountering UFOs and it was interfering with our training. Uh, you have David Fravor who said, "Yeah, I chased I chased a UFO off of uh, off the west coast of the United States, and uh, I couldn't I couldn't get close to it. It it was it was uh, vastly superior to anything I could do, and it and it broke the laws of physics. Um, and then you have David Grush, who was hired as an investigator for the UAP task force, and over a four year period." encountered uh, 40 witnesses who gave him credible evidence that there was a, a, a UFO retrieval and reverse engineering program going on uh, that had been in a lot of ways uh, buried in private industry and that uh, government funds were being illegally diverted to these illegal programs. And and he, uh, you know, as I said, and he, and he went through the legal processes of uh, disclo- of trying to do a whistleblower complaint and was deemed, uh, his complaint was deemed credible and urgent. 
And and again, at least 30 of the people that he cited who had firsthand knowledge of this stuff have also testified um, privately, confidentially, because uh, everything he's talking about is still, you know, he can only talk about so much without going to jail. So he comes out and all, you know, and all people have to say is, oh, it's just hearsay. And everyone goes, oh, great. I don't have to think about it. Yeah. You know, the newspapers, the media, the television news channels. They hear, oh, it's, oh, oh, okay, thank you. I don't have to talk about it or think about it. Um, but anyone with an ounce of intellect can make the distinction between hearsay, um, you know, saying, oh, he just heard this from a friend, you know, or a friend of a friend said this, or a four-year investigation by a trained intelligence officer. There's a there's a quant, there's a qualitative difference between that and hearsay. Yeah. So those those are kind of the things that and it's the our willingness to 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 shut off our our minds from things is one of the things that intrigues me the most about the the phenomena. Yeah. And and to be honest with you, it's one of the things that intrigues me about all of these sort of forbidden conversational territories. Like you, when somebody says I'm not allowed to say or do or think something, I mean, maybe it's because I'm a high school dropout. Maybe it's because I'm a Me natural Yeah, well, hey, Dave. Um, you know, I, I'm somebody who's in the business of ideas. You're somebody who's in the business of ideas. So when an idea rolls around, I know that there, it does sort of feel sometimes like there has been promoted um, a feeling that new ideas should be feared first. And I'm just not afraid of ideas in the same way that I'm really not afraid of words. And so mm -hmm. um, I'm very interested in interesting people, especially people who have a natural curiosity. In fact, sort of one of the the brand archetypes of human that makes me the most uncomfortable is when I'm around somebody who is not curious. I'm like, it feels, it, it borders on psychopathic to me. So ideas mm -hmm. for me, I've, I'm I'm very excited. I, knowing that you you're a longtime atheist and you know i feel like i've been cycling through a lot of belief systems in the last little while um i grew up going to the united church as a kid and my parents weren't pious or by any stretch but no, i like that's barely a church yeah. it's barely a church yeah i i love the singing i love the stories i loved it um in the in as i get older now i'm trying to reconcile a lot of um where my spirituality fits and and it's oddly enough it is through the discussion of some of this esoteria that gives me a a more interesting place to lay my spiritual pieces down as they relate to possible um, off-planet species or altered or species from other dimensions. Um, the clear and empirical evidence of the fact that there are technologies existing on this planet as we speak that are probably not human or definitely possibly not human. I mean... You and I come from the 1970s and 80s where the idea of space travel and space beings was more or less being minted and and um, sort of paraded out before us as kids. It was it, it are were we prepared for this? Do you think uniquely uh, have, coming from this time in the late 20th century that we were imbued with so much space talk and space lore that here it is, and we're a generation that's prepared for this kind of messaging? Or oh, I think that's definitely um, um, true. Um, and the, the question, I guess, the question is whether that was uh, 
whether that was part of a plan or not, or whether yeah. it was just a, a, a cultural phenomena. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, I'm I'm just old enough that I have memories of when uh, 2001 was released, and not because I, I didn't see the movie, but everyone was talking about 2001 when I was a little kid. You know, and people were talking about, people were, you know, talking about the monolith and talking about, you know, and, and I remember sitting, I remember as, you know, in 1970, uh, adding up how old I would, figure out how old I would be in 2001, mm. you know, and going, oh, that's pretty old, but I guess I could still enjoy life then. I guess I'll still be able to appreciate what's going on at 37. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's, so it was like uh you know, and then of course, you know, then uh, I also, you know, I also grew up watching Star Trek and um, loving it. And then Star Wars came along, and you know, and or for me, more importantly, like you know, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and and I, you know, and I also, as an old movie buff, loved movies, you know, that were like. You know, uh, the day the Earth stood still, which really isn't a UFO movie; it's a Christ movie. Um, you know, it's a, a Christian parable. Um, but um, so all of these, so yeah, we're. I think we're 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 definitely. Um, it's in our in our cultural awareness the idea of aliens. Um, but yeah, but I think, but but still, I think most people are willing to. I think it actually, in a sense, um, made it also made it easier to dismiss the real evidence of aliens because because uh, we could go no this is just people who are being influenced by fiction right these people are all they've just seen too many movies and that becomes the argument uh, so we're we're in a way conditioned we're we're conditioned to think about it but then also conditioned to still dismiss it I feel like you're very well read oh, the, the the several interviews I've listened to and or watched of you speaking within the context of this modality you're somebody who's read the books you've got the nomenclature you've got the terminology i've been invested in thinking around this subject and other sort of no-go zones for a lot of time it's really hard to assemble the language it's really hard to assemble a convincing elevator pitch on this stuff there are so many disparate pieces there are you're up against a wanton disbelief just to begin with um, not to mention that like I said having a basis in the language some of the players to be able to call up some of the names some of the stuff that within the community the parlance is sort of has been agreed upon for so long that yeah which is what I think is interesting about your podcast um, is that you're looking to be a transitionary force from probably a zero to no understanding of the parlance and players into a sort of a starter course. Is that true? You, you've yeah. seen, I mean, listening to you talk about it, I must say, like, like I said, I've never really outed myself in mm -hmm. it. And so it's, it's, it's wonderful to see your courage and, and just a depth. And, and the depth and depthness you have, or deafness, I should say, pardon me, with being able to talk about this stuff. Because I think a lot of it is, once you get past a few YouTube episodes, you run out of convincing material for the naysayer you're trying to convince that Christmas dinner, you know? So, mm -hmm. which, which, which then, 
it does no service to the to the overall picture. You know, if you're looking to be someone who's out there uh, convincing uh, the doubters, and if you sort of only if you're you're only you have a you have a primary preparation, but you don't you can't go deep. It it, it means in some ways it affects the potential convert's understanding or willingness to go your way. Yeah, well, that's the thing. It's uh, if you're if you're too exclusive in your, uh, your I guess your language and your approach to something, um, then 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 people aren't going to be brought on board. I mean, the, there's so many like podcasts out there and a lot of some really great ones mm -hmm. but then there's so many that are just um fall into and sometimes i know tom and i have to keep reminding ourselves not to do this where you fall into like an inside baseball mindset yep. you know and as somebody who doesn't watch baseball i know just how boring and uh <laughs> and, and uh how excluded i feel from it when people start sure. going on on stats and histories and and i go i don't care the, the game bores me um and so, uh, and it's, it's so many of the podcasts are just uh, people discussing the various factions within the UFO community and and who they hate and who they distrust and who they think is uh, worth, worthy. And there's so much uh, sort of, uh, you know, it, uh, I guess what's the term? Internecine fighting. Mm. Is that the pronunciation of it? I can never I'm remember. Not sure. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to go with internecine fighting. Yeah, it sounds lovely. All right, uh, in the community, and and I and Tom and I partly because Tom was really new to it when we started this because uh, it was one of the things where um, Tom started approaching me because because uh, I said my 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 interest in the UFO thing was always an intellectual interest um, about about how people think about things and and. Uh, and and what is the real what is the real data behind uh, the story, you know? And realizing oh, and, you know, and then when I realized there is so much data and so much history and so much uh, so many credible witnesses, uh, why aren't we taking it seriously, right? Um, so it was always that that was and but then you know once I engaged in the subject, uh, I, like a year ago January, um, I actually saw one. Um, wow. Which was yeah, I saw it with my my friend uh, who I became friends with because I started speaking publicly about UFOs. I wound up becoming friends with a guy named Jeremy Corbell, um, who has uh, who was uh, present along with his his mentor George Knapp at the congressional hearing, sitting right behind all the witnesses and helped organize that event. And so Jeremy and I became friends, and and Jeremy had also just he had been spent he had dedicated his life to researching the subject making documentaries about it but has never seen anything and then one night i was out with jeremy and we were walking his dog and uh, you know and i said oh you know it was a beautiful night starry sky i was watching the commercial traffic in the distance and i said uh, you know jeremy this would be a great night to see something and like 30 seconds later jeremy goes dave turn around and we turned around and there was a craft an orangey gold craft off in the distance um pulsating with an orangey gold light and on the front of it were three white lights that were also pulsating and we watched this thing circle the valley we were in until it got right in front of us and then it hung then it hung in front of us for about a minute um you know i think about a minute but it's hard to judge time mm -hmm. in that circumstance and then it went behind the mountains and uh and 
you know, and neither of us spoke or did anything for this entire time. And it was silent um, and large and structured. And you could see the details of it from where we were. And it wasn't until it went behind the mountains that Jeremy goes, dude, that was a UFO. And um, so we saw something. Uh, so that, you know, in, in a way I went, oh, damn it. Because um, I know what the effect of that is. I know that that suddenly, suddenly I'm not a person looking at the data and looking at the facts and looking at the witnesses. And suddenly I'm a believer. Right. And which I'm not. I'm not a believer in in it. I'm I'm somebody who goes. You know, it's like I'm not a I'm not a believer in buses. I'm not a believer in airplanes. Mm. You know. Yeah. yeah. I'm I, I I you know I'm going well. They're there. So, you know, mm-hmm. I don't, it's not a question of belief. Um, but, um, yeah, what were we talking about? <laughs> but it, about the, so discussing, so I started discussing that sighting on Twitter because I thought, well, like, I kind of have to because I know there's so many people who have, whose lives have been harmed and who have suffered because they've seen things and they've been afraid to talk about it. And I thought, well, if I can do anything, I can just talk about it. You know, mm. that's that's not a big deal. If I can, you know, if I can just be public and say, well, I saw this thing. It's almost like if if we sort of had a, uh, a global sit down with everybody at the table, it would be hard to carry our petty differences along with a mind to the fact that we are sharing this earthly space with somebody, something, some other person, some other things like like all of a sudden does it does it not neutralize a lot of our human squabbles does this thing not sort of call us to be a better version of ourselves as we attempt to understand what aligns earthly creatures with the visitors who are maybe off planet or from another dimension like it, again this goes to what I, what I can't believe hasn't happened already yeah. which is us all waking up and having a bigger what 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 discussion is ushered in after we look at the evidence and go well hey uh, this is happening yeah well that might be part of why we're not supposed to talk about it is because it might do that <laughs> uh, you know going again going back to the Cold War I mean you certainly didn't want to have any reason for um, um, you know Americans did want any reason for the American people to feel brotherhood and shared you know a shared destiny with the soviets at that point in history um so yeah so you you know um so you know you know look look you know reagan who i'm not not a guy i agree with much about but you know he you know he put that forward in the un you know if if we were faced with a a threat from outside wouldn't we wouldn't we all realize we're human beings Mm. um and I think maybe we're just really reluctant to realize we're all human beings. I mean, it's the thing is you talked earlier about other esoteric stuff. Like part of part of the UFO phenomenon is it does take you into questioning so many things. Yes. And and like I I still remain an atheist, and I still I'm I'm very reluctant to think of my anything as being spiritual. Um, but I but I've become much less of a uh, an ardent believer in the scientific method. Um, I've kind of realized, oh, but there are shortcomings to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it isn't perfect. It's good at some things. And I've also become aware that, you know, that there's a real strong possibility that things like consciousness 
aren't restricted to the skull. Yeah. Um, Because there's just too much evidence for it. Again, like things like clairvoyance and remote viewing. um, Yes. um, You know, and, you know, near-death experiences and reincarnation. um, And, you know, various psychic phenomena, you know, that just keep happening. Mm -hmm. And as much as science keeps saying they don't keep happening, they keep happening, you know. Well, Dave, and honestly, it thrills me to hear you even say this because... I mean, I feel like <clears throat> whether my Christianity has been imprinted on me through past lives, whether it's just been a strong force in this life, I would say that I, first of all, your, your thoughts on belief, dogma also kind of is, is, a, is, is a bit scary for me. And I think the more I know, the more I don't, more I realize I don't know much at all. But I will say that within the context of this truth-finding over the last 10, 15 years, it has strengthened my spirituality to, with some of this empirical stuff that's floated into our reality, it helps me feel that there's a magic in my life that that the 2,500-year the narrative that was pitched to me as a kid in school with a neat middle and, and beginning is only a, a sliver of the story and that the possibility that I'm connected to eons of intelligence um things going back to before the ice age and that um that the specialness of what's happening on this planet should in some ways wake us all up to the excitement of being alive like even my misanthropy is gone my fear of death is gone and it's a lot to do with an interest in these subjects whether it it takes mm-hmm. focus off of us as individuals we've already said well why why is it that we can't just come together why is it that we can't see that we share i mean even just wanting to discuss with you uh simulation theory and and the fact that we as humans are inextricably connected through the ether and through the movement of of cells, atoms, what have you, where there is no separation. Um, but we seem to be forced into a, an individualized experience, which doesn't tell nearly half of the full story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's, um, I mean, even when you have like, you know, like scientists, like uh, um, Donald Hoffman, who's putting forward theories that, you know, that... that uh, you know that space time is not fundamental yeah and that that perhaps the only th- thing that is fundamental in the universe is consciousness that you know the consciousness may be the you know the a priori basis yeah. of all reality um which i don't understand at all but i can repeat those <laughs> i can repeat yeah. those words without understanding it um but you feel it in your gut, though, don't you? I feel well, that stuff in my gut. When I hear these big physics propositions, I go, it's hard for me to wrap an intellectual, get an intellectual grip, but my stomach says, this is, this is where it's at. Well, yeah, there's, there's just, um, I mean, science has been great, and it's, it's enabled us to do so many wonderful things and terrible things. Um, and, I, you know, and I still, I love science, and it's, I'm really interested in it. Um, but you know, but I also go well. You know, about fifteen years ago, uh, science uh, had to come out and admit, oh, uh, you know, ninety-five uh, percent of the universe is missing. <laughs> you know, and that seems like a fairly large oversight. 
right. you know, and you know, they that realize that that we can only we can only come up with five percent of what should be out there um, based on how everything behaves, and uh, and science was pretty comfortable with then just making up something to explain. They just made up dark matter and dark energy, and uh, they, it doesn't mean anything. They just made it up. Because uh, they said it has to be there because of what everything is doing. But then you have like the UFO or ghost phenomenon and they have the exact opposite approach, which is it can't be happening. So it isn't right. Um, as a, you know, but dark matter must exist because otherwise what is happening can't happen. But so why not go look at something that is happening and say, well, let's even though it might seem impossible, let's try to figure out why it's happening. One of the riskier things I feel like I talk about to people who are internal in my circle who are going to love me no matter what I think or say, um, that my feeling around some of the popular phrases that have been born in the last three to five years, which I'm uncomfortable with new, well, I'm uncomfortable with new, period, but I'm uncomfortable yeah. with phraseology. That's the privilege of the elderly. Yes, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> and you're not even elderly yet, I am. But I'm starting to get there. <laughs> but <clears throat> that... um. The, the the notion that there is a group of people who follow science or in fact follow the science to me is it's it's a disarming feature of it there's enough there's enough in that language morsel that I get uncomfortable around it for lots of reasons. One, I think it presupposes an image of a altruistic person in a lab coat with a with a pen like a a pocket protector with pens and they'll work for nothing as long as it means science is getting done and that we get down to the core of things through a uh, a methodical protocol that is is not to be altered and to me this is because i come from a place of creativity um first i know that the big ideas are mostly accidents and so if you're ambling through a well-designed prototype or, pro or protocol there's an excellent chance you're going to miss the big thing um, mm -hmm. We've already talked about that as it even pertains to kids in the hall. Had there been something rigidly methodical there, maybe the magic of kids in the hall would have been lost or had it been subject to committee as well. So I think some of these narratives around science that we've sort of that have become almost a don't ask, don't tell feature to the it's, it's a it's a it's a language inhibitor as opposed to it. it do I feel that it opens up discussion? All of a sudden, oh, well, this couldn't be serious science. This doesn't sound like it's being done by a guy with frizzy hair and a lab coat and a pocket protector. Again, that image of the altruistic scientist who would do it whether he was being paid or not. It's, it's just interesting, the fantasy that predicates the systems of belief. And when I, as I've moved through the, the, the discussions and the language that have emerged in the last three to five years, it's, it's a landmine of, or it's, it's, a, it's, it's fettered with, or it's it's festooned, let's say, with 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 little tricks and minds that you stumble over. These language features that are, I think, meant to confuse more than they are meant to illuminate, and meant to divide more than they are meant to connect. What do you have to say to that? Am I crazy, or is are you feeling this? No, I no, I think I, I think I know what you're talking about. Um... <laughs> I know it was quite circuitous, Dave. Sorry, um, but no, I think there's um, yeah the notion. That, look, here we have. Follow the science. Yeah, look, science is great at some things. Science is fantastic. And uh, and we all benefit immensely from it. I mean, 
Science is great. Um, you know, look, you know, people might not get might get mad about it, but you know what? Uh, um, uh, vaccines are are awesome. Um, you know, it's like we go, yeah, science did it. Well, you know, we had the problem, and with like COVID, and science did a great job. They got they got they managed to avoid millions more people dying. Great, that's what science is is really good at. Um, is looking at a problem and and you know breaking down the physical elements of it and figuring out what to do. Um, but we also live in a world where uh, the two the two made you know two major fields of physics, you know um, astrophysics, um, you know macrophysics, uh, suddenly comes up you know ninety five percent short on what should be in the universe. And at the other extreme, we have we have quantum mechanics that most people who really study quantum mechanics acknowledge no one understands. Mm-hmm. We know how to apply it, quantum mechanics. We know how to apply it. We know how to build things based on it. We know how to get make measurements based on it and get and have technologies that function brilliantly. Uh, but no one understands the core uh, the core of like what the what the wave fun- the wave function is still a mysterious thing that no one agrees on. Um, so we have these two major branches that are very, you know, on a practical level, really useful, um, that, uh, have huge holes at their core. So we go, yeah, right. So science is great and useful, but it is, it is not, uh, it is not perhaps the best tool for dealing with things that aren't uh, replicable, um, that aren't uh, that can't be studied from um, from an observer's point of view, really. Because mm. um, how do you you know? It's like if the non-human intelligences are as advanced as we think they are, then us trying to study them through the scientific method is as right. kind of as hopeless as rats deciding they're going to draw some real good theories about the people running the you know running the lab. Because the people running the lab, they got all the power and they can change all the variables at any moment. Mm-hmm. So the rats are never going to get a clear idea about what these people are up to. Not to mention, again, like <clears throat> I can't help but be drawing comparisons to the kids in the hall again, where it brought more than just a new concept. It brought more than just uh, a new, uh, an, an elevated nuance. Like it was a a fresh vantage point. It was fresh language. It was a lot of freshness. And, and I feel like even when I hear people talk about AI and, and, you know, if, you know, AI sort of, if left to go on its own devices as it, as it sort of seems like it is right now, that it's versions of how it prioritizes thought, what it sees as new thinking, like the limitations of what we're even able to contain in terms of axiomatic connections of ideas there's even having this discussion with you i was nervous to even go down this lane because i can't embody everything i would like to i feel like i know a lot of things i feel like i've read a lot of things i feel like i would like to connect those things through a a way that my stomach has already made the connection yet i maybe don't have the language or the the or the iq to assemble these notions in a way that feels sturdy to me that I could go and make a case for this, like I say, at that Christmas dinner table. Like, to me, I want to share some of this because I want it... 
the what it's done for me spiritually, what it's done for me in terms of alleviating fear of 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 really putting me in a position of seeing that as you know, there's the one side of me that says, oh, well, as an individual, my life doesn't mean very much. But that's that's an older, more er erroneous version of thought for me, whereas now I feel actually I'm part of a collective here. My, there's no such thing as my oneness is is a oneness with God and the rest of humanity and our connection to this bizarrely impenetrable penetrable physics concept, even hearing you just dis discuss that, <clears throat> you know, that light speed may be moot by this point if we can fold, if time space is foldable, if, if this geometric thing that we sort of have contextualized the space that we live in, that maybe, maybe we're just coming into some ways, modalities to understand the fact that, that that velocity, that the idea of humans getting places quickly, that, well, we got to run instead of walk. Well, hold it a second here. This theory, this thought in and of itself takes us off the trail of what is probably happening with the universe being able to fold into itself or the cosmos having uh, an elasticity to it that mm -hmm. means that the idea of physical travel does not exist. I mean, time and space in and of itself, the, once you start to let my silly bum brain here rest in that stuff, all I have is want for a spiritual connection to this because it feels the bigness and the smallness are now getting more and more defined. Am I making any sense? Here yeah, I am no, attempting no, I, to try to put this into language. Well, I would say, somebody... well, well it, here's the thing is, is if, and it's not just um, UFO people, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's a, growing sense in the world of physicists that space-time might not be real mm -hmm. um you know as as a as a block thing you know space space and time as one you know as inextricably one thing um that it, it might not really exist it might just be an emergent property of the universe or it might be just um a product of consciousness it you know it might be something that that we we perceive because we bring it into existence um and if that's the case if it isn't actually a real thing and if distance doesn't even exist you yeah. know and there's even the notion that um you know the, the holographic principle too that we're, yeah. there's the notion that that all that basically everything in the universe is really clumped together and there's just this projection on a you know an outer membrane that makes it appear like there's space in three dimensions, you know. Um, but it's just a projection. Um, and these are physicists saying these things, you know. Yeah. So uh, if if these things are possible, you know, and you know, it's one of these where you go, you know, like people again. Comfort is the is the enemy, and so you know people are very comfortable saying, well. Light speed is the is the speed limit, and then therefore nothing can travel uh, faster than than that, and so therefore no one could ever get here uh, from another place. And it, it presupposes a lot of things. One one that that our understanding of physics is the end is the end of physics, um, which is <laughs> stupid. Um, and it also presupposes that other people's even if time and space do exist, that other people's concepts of time are different are, are the same as ours. You know, because yeah. what if your what if your your view of time, you know, what if you're a species that is uh, I'll call it pan temporal. What if you exist at all points of time simultaneously? Mm -hmm. um, then you could travel anywhere you want, and you're always 
you're not you're not you're not saying oh this is going to take me a billion years to travel there because you exist that in that billion year time frame anyway Mm -hmm. so you just you know you just go and you know who cares how long it takes to get there because you're experiencing all of time simultaneously so you know it's you know our 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 experience of time as the arrow of time even einstein said was an illusion you know you know you know the reality is an illusion um so if if that's true and if you know the past present and future all exist at the same all exist all the time then it's not impossible that there are beings that that likewise exist on all of those time frames Mm-hmm. So we can't we can't assume uh, that a human experience of the universe is a universal experience of the universe, or that we even understand the experience we're having because we could be some of those intertemporal yeah. species that you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, when you when I, I I've been reading a lot of Marcus Aurelius and and bringing stuff <clears throat> into. That's been a big part of how I've... Last year, I really fell apart and, and needed to put myself back together in a way that was much more sturdy. And, and I did, and, too. Oh, <laughs> high fives, Dave. <laughs> it's, it, it, it's investing in this thinking, and, and maybe the people listening to this will be like, oh, boy. Like, but I'm with you that um, um, the comfort way is, is, a, is a version... Uh, I... I've not ever really truly been satisfied with a lot of the things that have been told to me, this is how it works. Um, and maybe that's why I ended up dropping out of high school. I had a, what I feel is, and I mean, you and I as artists and as self-employed people, like we've had to have a deep belief in, the, in ourselves in order to kind of fumble our way through all of this. Um, I think in some ways I still have a sense that my stomach knows best about a lot of things. It doesn't have an empirical knowing, but it points me in the general direction that I believe sort of is the is the direction of my destiny and that it has truth wrapped into it. That gut has a brilliance to it that my brain just doesn't. Um, yeah. No, I think, but look, there's even, you know, scientists are starting to, you know, come to the notion that in, intuition is a, is a legitimate form of knowledge. You know, and right. you know, and some people like like um, uh, Gary Nolan over at Stanford. He's even sort of trying to study the science behind intuition, and there's other people doing it too. You know that there may, you know, we may we may be able to find structures in the brain that represent higher abilities towards for intuition. So that that's it's it's intuition is a, is a path to to knowledge. Yeah, I feel like as artists, and especially performing artists, you would be, you and I would have a relationship to improvisation that would, I think, make us good candidates, particularly to have intuitive muscles that have had a fairly good workout over these years. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I don't know about you, that's how I see my entire career. It's predicated on that that wisdom, which is intuition. Yeah, well, look, telling a joke is largely intuition, you know. Um, knowing what will be funny. I mean, I, I, um, I have an inherent ability to, to be funny, which might not be evident in, in this conversation. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's evident, Dave. Come on. But, uh, but I have an inherent ability to be funny. And then I combine that with, uh, with, with, with years and years and years of practice and study kind of and, and learning my craft. 
and which which made me more more efficient at using that inherent talent. But it was an inherent talent, and that talent I, I think is entirely born of intuition because there's no there's no wait. I mean, science you know scientists keep trying to analyze humor and and uh and all they all, all they really do is manage to make comedians laugh um because <laughs> you know it's you know because we can just look at it and go, oh my god that is so wrong <laughs> you know immediately and, and just intuitively we, we know that what their 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 analysis is wrong so yes and music too like how do you how do you how can you create music um other than intuitively, because you've got so few tools to work with in music. You've got such a limited number of tones that 100%. you can use. I mean, I mean, you're, you're talking about the thing I'm thinking about every sec, most seconds that I'm awake is the science of this thing that lives inside of me that is, that, that has... That's, that fascinates, compels, and directs me to put things into the world, ideas not new but maybe rethought or regenerated or, or filtered, and um, I have a belief that my ideas need to be heard, and my intuition drives that constantly. You know, I, I think that if you're in the business of having the hood up on your personhood, I, I like to think of this eyeball that, you know, lives in my head. I try to pull it out of my head and look, look at some of... I feel like about five years ago, I had this feeling that like I, I flipped the bird while I was driving or something. And then I really thought, heck, I thought I was in charge of my personality. If somebody said, you know, my personality is of my own design. But then if you give the, if you give the finger to somebody when you're driving, it's like, well, I didn't, there was no forethought there. That was a trained response. As soon as you start looking at your, your personhood as a series of trained responses, where do these responses even come from? And are they mine? Were they put in here? Have some of them, is this part of a manipulation? Is this part of a propaganda thing? Is this part of what I learned as a kid that's a vestige of that and that thinking hasn't been renewed? But once I start looking under the hood at myself and the things I believe and how I react to stimulus through the day, I mean, I don't know how much of me is really me and how much of me has been there by my own design. Yeah, no, it's a struggle to, to define those things. And I, I got to tell you, I actually, over the last year, I did uh, a, a few rounds of ketamine therapy, um, which is, which is uh, uh, sadly, it's the only legal form of psychedelic therapy right now, um, which is drag because it's such, you know, ketamine is such a boring drug. Um, but I did uh, this uh, ketamine therapy um to, to try and deal with like a, a you know bout of depression right you know and it was uh and i also had i think i my head therapist had said they thought i probably had more like ptsd than depression um and those are things where i did like three sessions and then i kept thinking this is sort of working but it's not really working and then after the fourth session i suddenly had this because the idea of, the, of uh, psychedelic therapy is that it's not the, the trip itself. It's that you, it creates a, it opens the brain up to neuroplasticity, that you can form new neural pathways. It breaks down old locked-in pathways of thinking. And the idea is that in between these sessions, you're supposed to like model behavior and, and avoid stresses that will, that will get cemented in again. 
Um, so I was doing that. And then after the fourth session, I suddenly had this very clear third person view of myself and my own history and my actions. Hmm. And it was, um, the best way I can describe it is that suddenly I could see my own behavior in life, but I was now devoid of any need to defend that behavior. Wow. And because I could go, oh, no, that was, that was a, and a lot of it had to do with like anger that I really didn't, that I kept justifying, you know, sure. I was angry at that, you know, and a lot of it was like really like dumb, like anger at, you know, um, customer service people on the telephone, you know, just ranting at people on the, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and then, you know, but then suddenly I'm going, oh, I can see that and I can, but I'm not invested in figuring out ways I can explain that I'm actually a good person, even though I did that. Right. I can just go, oh, that's, why'd I do that? That's weird. And now that's, and, um, and even like over a year later, like all the sort of, uh, like that low level anger that I had all the time, that was also a, a fight or flight response to fears of, you know, in my life of fears of rejection and, you know, and fears of people walking away and, you know, and uh, all of that was just gone all of a sudden. And, you know, and it was in part about a biomechanical intervention, a biomechanical intervention to break down those, those, those locked in, uh, you know, circuits. Hmm. And, uh, you know, and once they were broken down and, you know, cause I've been in, therapy since the uh since the late 90s um to very little effect um and but this this intervention suddenly i'm going oh i actually have insight that came from it and not just insight because it's not just a question of oh all right now i have this information now how do i apply it and how do i make use of it and how do i change based on this insight it was more an insight and going oh one of the things i can i have insight of is that it's gone the, right. P- the PTSD that I had been living with from childhood and from relationships uh, was just gone. Um, you know, I could still be sad and I could still get depressed, but that uh, that 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 anger was gone. I don't know if that if that makes sense. Oh, it's big, Dave. It's really big. Yeah. Um, it's very inspiring to hear this. <clears throat> I feel like I should let you go. Um, oh well. You- You've, you've I've, been generous. I've got nothing to do. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I mean, uh, well, then we will we will we'll close the door on this podcast very slowly, but just just we'll start to wind it down. Um, sure. Um, because everything, <clears throat> I was nervous to chat with you because I wanted this chat to be as respectful as as it should be, given what I how I think of you and and what I feel your. Uh, contribution to art and culture, the groundwork it laid for people like me and my cohort. And I wanted to make sure that this discussion it was at the very least respectful of you and your work because, <clears throat> and like lots of people, there's things of you I know very well, like Kids in the Hall, and there are things I don't know that well, like uh, uh, news radio. I, I don't, I don't, it, it it didn't come into my life, you know, in, in a way that made, uh, I, I think I was living in Toronto and I was one of those proud lefties who didn't have a TV, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think listening to your, 
you're outing yourself in this ufology, what you're doing with the Really podcast. It's brave. It's given me, yet again, another... You've blazed a pathway for me that I can feel a little bit more comfortable about outing myself within these modalities because... And maybe, I'm not sure, is, is, was the ketamine treatment, was that part of your being able to see that, that, that life isn't zero-sum and you can be whoever the hell you want and you're allowed to say whatever the fuck you want because... Like, you know, I, think, was, I, think, I think that was always core to who I am. Uh, it is. Okay. Yeah. yeah, that was always yeah the 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 one the, the wanting to say I think I, I I I can those impulses I can remember clearly going back to at least four years old, um, you know and you know I, I remember I remember going to Sunday school and 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 sort of just going again it was the same thing I just sort of saw holes in things and I kept saying why isn't anyone else aren't, aren't you guys listening to this. You know, yeah, and uh, you know, and uh, so they stopped going to Sunday school because you know that's that. Those is, are the absurdity equations, right? Like that's yeah. that's how absurdity works. It, it's it takes somebody's eye to go. They're telling me I'm supposed to think this when I see this. Yet what I think when I see this is they're full of shit. Yeah, um, yeah, and so I think that's always been a core core to me. I think the the ketamine more just like. Um, it it relieved me of anger that it came out of you know I like growing up with my dad was had borderline personality disorder and then I managed to get into a relationship with someone who also had it um, you know and then you know and I've just you know had a lot of uh, sort of inter, interpersonal sort of trauma in my life um, and so it kind of got uh, got me over got me got all that anger out of the way that's what the ketamine mm. did for me. Um, all the other stuff still, you know, I'm still, still basically the same person, but I'm just not, uh, I'm not angry about stupid things and little things. And I'm not as fearful as I used to be. Mm. Um, but you know, you, and, but thinking about the, uh, I was going to say, do you know who else is also, uh, I just found out recently, because yeah, the other thing, once you start talking about this, you realize the, 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 the number of people who are, are thinking about this and maybe not talking about it is mm-hmm. like people keep coming out like it really is a coming out it is like you know yeah. you know um but like i just read recently on twitter that uh like ron sexsmith has had a ufo experience oh is that right I yeah i've been avoiding twitter for my own sanity i pop in him now and again but okay yeah and uh yeah i mean i try to avoid reading most of it but i you know i have to use it as a as a as an instrument of of my profession mm-hmm. <laughs> you know um but yeah, I, I didn't know this, but I guess Ron had a, a UFO experience like in 2012 that he was talking about, uh, which was a you know which I was going oh that's interesting and you know and I and I, you know um, uh, and Mur- I you know Murray Hammond reached out to me from the old 97s. He said UFO experiences and is going through his family and you know it's just you know it's just more and more people come out and talk about it. And uh, so I think I think that's what you'll I think it's, you'll find if if you if it's something you get comfortable with with talking about publicly, then it's startling how many people will approach you. Yeah, you know I think that for me it's just about <clears throat> moving into the space with humility. Um, and you 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 and Tom and your podcast have been very good to sort of say again like there are people with reservoirs of knowledge in this modality that are, they're the, they're, they're the, 
the people who should be highlighted. And then there's, I mean, you have a, a real grasp on things. And I feel like if I was let to go, I might even be able to be accused of having some grasp on this. But it's um, <clears throat> it's an infinity of reading and discovery. And also, uh, it's in terms of how you relate to your own self, your willingness to have an openness and to be constantly ready to feel like you're just cluing into something and then all of a sudden the rules are being rewritten. I even feel that way within the context of, of these discover, discoveries within the context, uh, within physics, simulation theory in particular is just yeah. one of those things. Yeah, I've I, had a... This, again, like, I just feel like, again, something put forward by serious science people. Yeah. <laughs> simulation theory and, isn't flaky people coming up with this idea. No. It's not stoners. And, and, not stoners. As much as for stoners, it feels like, man, finally, something we can buy into, you know? It's like <laughs> yeah. this simulation thing sounds exactly right. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, like I said earlier, I have a, an innate sense that life is utterly magical, um, that it's a stupendous and remarkable and absurdly wonderful thing that we're here having this experience together, that we are up against... Um, narratives coming from a televised media or whatever there's i'm having too many thoughts come all at once but it, it goes back again to the kids in the halls license that it gave to a generation of people to hold on celebrate and 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 enjoy and love those absurd thoughts enjoy that the the inability to fit in enjoy not being a joiner i think that's another thing is that it seemed like a not a joiners club. Even though you, it was a five-person band, you were against the world. And I think for people like me who are not nor, not naturally joiners, who prefer to live in my own thoughts, that here I saw five individuals jockeying for position on TV in a way that felt handmade and in a way that felt like it was coming from just down the street and in a way that felt not only magical and timely, but I, I was lucky to be a teenager when you were putting images and thoughts of absurdity in the kind of way you were. I mean, I know we look at art and, and there can be, oh, I was saved by the Morrissey, by Morrissey and the Smiths, which, you know, in theory I was. But I was yeah. also saved by Kids in the Hall because you made my teenage life make sense. And by giving a context to that absurdity that made it feel like investing in this is just as real, authentic, and meaningful as investing in anything else that's coming your way from this television oh, set. Thank you, but that's but then again, but the Smiths brought back guitars in three-minute songs. Hmm. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> you know I can think about the perfection. Sometimes you know the idea of a band because I was always a solo guy. I got into a band called Mounties, and then I, being in my little band, I understood. Oh yeah, this is what it. This is what a band. This is what I imagined was happening in the Police, for instance, where it's like these three people or these they they're making music that couldn't sound any other way if you if you changed any of the personnel. And I think again, like there's something persuasive about a band in in, in terms of the the archetype or the narrative within popular culture. I think we buy into bands especially in the indie modality because it's like we buy into the relationships. We buy into the fact that you know, three to five non-joiners found one another and are now sort of preposterously enforcing their individualist mindsets on us through the context of this entertainment product. I think Kids in the Hall was more or less a band, as, as I perceived it. Um, 
I yeah. wanted to hang out with you guys to see what the inner workings were like. I mean, I liked the product, but I also knew that there was a depth of personality behind this that, as a teenager, gave me a sense that in the world there are kooks that are you're going to love and that are going to love you back. And the proof of that is that here's five kooks that love each other enough to hate each other some days is from what you're saying. Mm -hmm. But that but that kind of love is the thing that you build great things on, which is what Kids in the Hall did. We had well we had um I think we were five people who were temperamentally not not inclined to be in a group but found ourselves in a group that we couldn't escape from because because uh, uh, I think we were all clever enough to realize, oh, I'm better with these guys than I would be on my own. Right. You know, and some of us were more reluctant to address that. And some of us, some of us have only recently uh, <laughs> come to terms with it, uh, to be honest with you. Uh, but, uh, you know, yeah, and it was... Uh, you know, well, I, I, like I say, like I'm certainly grateful I got to be part of that, and still I am a part of it. And and yeah. as you know, I'm a I'm I'm a big fan of of, of your work. So going going back to when I first heard heard you on heard you on CBC Radio, and and I think originally thought you were Dave Bedini. Um, <laughs> so is, that, is that Dave Bedini? I think it was you playing songs solo on CBC mm. Radio. It was the first time I heard you. And then they said, oh, and I thought these songs are great, and uh, and then you know sort of sought you out after that. Well, thanks, Dave. I appreciate that. Um, I'll wrap it up. I'll I'll do the professional thing and let you go. Um, it's been a real honor and a pleasure, a privilege indeed. And you've been very generous with me. We've uh, slid through all kinds of uh, parts of your life, to, and you've you've been open and thoughtful. And really, uh, it's it's an honor. I'm grateful. No, it's fun talking. I don't to know. You. I don't, I've run out of language on this. Well, it's day, always, really, always fun, always been fun hanging out with you. So hopefully, we can do that again in person soon. I'm going to invest more time in the new podcast. I recommend to anybody listening that you do that as well. I think that it's an important thing you're doing. And congrats on not resting, not becoming that intellectual couch potato you uh, that you uh, characterized earlier. Bless you, Dave. Dave Foley. Thank you so much for being here. It's, it's um, thank you, Huxley. Yeah, Thanks. This is a real. I'm glad I got out of bed today. Thank you. Oh, goodness. <laughs> I'm glad I provided the opportunity. Okay, well, take care of yourself. All right, cheers. Cheers. Bye. The Stumble Forward is an Isadora Media production and is hosted by Hoxley Workman and produced by Jennifer Cavanaugh. Be sure to subscribe and follow The Stumble Forward. You can support the podcast at patreon.com slash Hoxley Workman. Thank you for listening. Stumble Forward, Stumble Forward, the Stumble Forward.